This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. As we head into the 2018 congressional elections, the United States seems as deeply polarized along party lines as it has ever been. Republicans are passing school voucher programs in many states, while Democrats are strongly opposed to them. Charter schools have been come increasingly politicized. Teacher unions and merit pay are dividing the parties. The parties seem as divided as they were at the time of Abraham Lincoln, or at least that seems to be the argument of many pundits out there. They cite many issues in education, healthcare, spending policy, illegal immigration, and lots of other things. So is America really as divided today as it was in the past? or more divided today than in the recent past and as divided as it was 150 years ago when the Civil War broke out. Some pundits are saying that this is the case, but another position is being taken in a new book called Unstable Majorities, Polarization, Party Sorting, and Political Stalemate by Hoover Senior Fellow Morris Fiorina, who's also a professor at Stanford University. I'm delighted to have Mo, as he is known to his friends, with me on the Education Exchange today. Mo, you say Americans are as moderate and balanced now as they have been in the 1960s. Why then have our politics become so crazy? Well, I think uh, you, you hit the nail on the head in your introductory remarks when you said Americans are as divided along party lines, and that's really a crucial modification that as difficult it is for people to believe, if you look at the American electorate as a whole, it basically looks the same as it did in the years when Jimmy Carter, a born-again Southern Democrat, uh, ran against Jerry Ford, a moderate Midwestern Republican. If you look at people's uh, ideological self-classifications, whether they consider themselves liberals, moderates, or conservatives, the distribution is the same today as it was in 1976. If you look at where they stand on individual issues like health care, defense spending, and so forth, uh, their positions are in the center as they were uh, 30, 40 years ago. Um, if you look at partisanship, uh, there's actually way more independence than there were uh, 30, 40 years ago, so people are actually becoming less polarized in partisan terms. But the critical thing is, if you look at Democrats and Republicans, they are now much more distinct than they used to be. Uh, political scientists call this uh, party sorting. So that, why do you call that party sorting? Uh, because it, it, the, uh, the parties have sorted out along ideological and issue lines. And even though the numbers of liberals, conservatives, and moderates are the same as in the past, virtually all of the liberals are now in the Democratic Party. So it used and, to be that some liberals were Republicans and some conservatives were Democrats. I think in the South especially there were conservatives who were Democrats. Correct. And in the Northeast we had the Rockefeller Republican wing of the Republican Party. Uh, what we have now are two parties that look like the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats in Europe when they were at the height of their power in the mid to late uh, 20th century. So it, historically, parties in a two-party system are called big tents. Uh, they, they cast a broad net uh, to bring in a lot of supporters. Our two parties today are much more narrow ideologically. They have transformed into something more resembling parliamentary parties in Europe. Well, why doesn't one party make a bigger tent and capture all the votes, letting the other party have the little divide that they want to focus on? That's a very good question, and probably if we still had the kinds of parties we had 50 years ago that were oriented toward winning elections and only winning elections, one of them would do that. 
but the parties themselves have transformed. They are much more now holding companies for ideological and issue groups. The Democrats are the party of the pro-choice and the environmental, uh, government workers, et cetera. Republicans are the party of the taxpayer groups, the gun groups, the pro-life groups, and so forth. And for many of these groups, it's really more important to have your positions uh, legitimized and worked for than it is to win elections. And uh, donors are similarly, uh, similarly uh, activated by such ideological motivations. So we really have uh, parties that are much more willing to lose uh, behind the right candidates than they are willing to uh, modify their positions. Well, are they controlled bigger... by the donors? Is that what you're uh, saying? That uh, there's rich people on both sides who are dictating what the parties are going to do? Well, they have a much greater influence now than they used to, put it that way. Uh, it used to be the case that if you were a member of Congress, most of your campaign contributions came from individual contributions within your district. Uh, today, uh, the co contribution base is nationalized. The Republicans use Texas as an ATM. The Democrats use Hollywood and Manhattan as an ATM. And when, you have, uh, when you're getting your money from certain areas, those areas also set the agenda uh, for people in different parts of the country. So uh, how about the primaries? I noticed when I read the book that I didn't see the primaries discussed at length. Now, maybe I missed something there, but would you say the primaries are contributing to this polarization of the parties? Uh, yes, for the simple reason that uh, I talk in the book a great deal about activists and the people who are active in politics. And that includes primary participation, which is typically in the single digits in most congressional races. And uh, in fact, uh, the key people who turn out, uh, you never hear phrases like raging moderates. You do hear phrases like intense liberals, knee-jerk conservatives, and so forth. But, uh, but moderates and reasonable people don't, are not nearly as likely to participate as people who are really intense in their views and really concerned about certain particular single issues. Well, would you abolish the primaries? Uh, whether I would or not, uh, under today's uh, circumstances, no, because the party leaders are typically the same sorts of people. Um, we, we can't uh, go back. We can't go back to a more materially oriented spoil system politics like we had uh, through much of our history. So we're just going to have to figure out a way to, to make the current system work better than it does. One of the key new concepts that you have introduced in this book is the concept of overreach. What do you mean by overreach? Yes, each party has a very intense base, the kinds of people we've just been talking about who vote in the primaries, who give money, and those people often have uh, more extreme views than the party as a whole, and certainly than the country as a whole, and they often have different priorities. So when, um, when a party wins office, uh, typically then the sort of moderate, middle-of-the-road citizen goes back to doing what they always do, which is earn a living, raise their families, and so forth. And the parties increasingly, are, the pressures come from their base. That means the Democratic pressures come from the left, Republican pressures come from the right. And um, so, for example, Bush wins re-election in 2004 and uh, starts talking about personal uh, personal Social Security accounts, and a whole lot of voters say, I never voted for that. That wasn't a campaign issue. Or Obama wins in 2008, and suddenly it's health care. And, uh, and people say, again, I didn't vote for that. That wasn't the, the main issue in the election. But these are the issues that were really important to elements of their base, and that's who the parties are responding to. And a result of taking both more extreme positions and emphasizing different priorities is that in the next election, typically in midterm, the moderates, uh, voters who sort of the marginal members of your electoral coalition defect. At least enough of them defect that you get serious losses, as happened to both those administrations. Well, I thought it was just that Republicans turned out in off-year elections and Democrats were less likely to. So the Democrats can win the presidential elections, but the Republicans have a big advantage on the off-year. 
That's, uh, that's highly exaggerated. The pundits love that. Uh, how do they explain 2004 to 2006 where Republicans win the presidential election and lose the midterm badly? Uh, no, I mean, it's, you're good for a few percentage points of turnout, but the much bigger things are, are we engaged in wars? How's the economy doing? That uh, demography is not going to drive everything the way many pundits think it does. Well, some people are saying that democracy is going to ensure a Democratic majority in the future, that the Democrats may take some hits on the way, but we're going to have more minorities voting in the future than we have now. Hispanics are going to continue to migrate into the United States. They're going to become citizens. They're going to uh, reach the age of 18. And along with uh, gays and uh, other marginal groups and African-Americans, of course, and, and, and uh, single women, that, that's going to constitute a majority. So there is really polarization, polarization of all other whites than the ones I've sort of mentioned here, and, and then minority groups. Is that a possible polarization that's occurring? Yes. Uh, the, the argument has some validity, has a lot of validity, if you assume everything else stays constant. But you can't do that. Uh, the fact of the matter is groups change uh, in their allegiances over time. The Catholics used to be very heavily Democratic. And then as they moved up the socioeconomic ladder, uh, they became considerably more Republican or at least less Democratic. Uh, there are several other problems with that thesis, the so-called rising American electorate thesis. Uh, one is that um, you don't lose support among whites that is sufficient to offset the gains you're making among minorities. Uh, that very well may have proved to be a false assumption in the last election, as John Judas himself, one of the originators of that thesis, has written. Another problem with it is that the, the, uh, prop, the uh, estimated numbers of minorities in this country are exaggerated by the way the Census Bureau counts minorities. If you have one Latina grandmother, uh, you are a, a, a minority in the continent that continues on through the time. And so the, the actual number of minorities is probably overestimated by the Census Bureau. And it's not at all clear how somebody two or three generations down who has one Latina or other kind of minority ancestor is going to behave. Our colleague uh, Lauren Davenport has done wonderful research on, on mixed race families. And many of them will come to identify as white, uh, not with their ethnic heritage. Uh, many mixed race children don't feel particularly disadvantaged uh, socioeconomically. And so the, the thesis basically took a germ of, uh, of data uh, which was interesting and potentially important, but blew it up beyond all proportion, I think. So if it's not this division along racial and ethnic and uh, the in-groups and the out-groups, is there a social class dimension to the changes that are occurring in American politics? Are the better educated now uh, voting Democratic and the less educated voting Republican, which is totally the opposite of what it was like when I was young? Uh, correct. It used to be the case we all thought of uh, the more highly educated professional managerial class as right wing and the industrial worker as left wing. And there's been a transformation. Uh, it's definitely, and it takes place as much along income and uh, much along educational lines as income lines. That uh, a lot of the uh, commentary in the last election talked about how there was a split between the college educated who voted for Clinton and the non college educated who voted for Trump. The data are actually. Uh, a, a, more subtle than that. If you look at uh, uh, narrower divisions, anybody below a college degree certainly voted for Trump. If they were white. If they were white, yes. I'm yeah. talking here about basically all, practically all minorities voted for Trump, or for, excuse me, voted for Clinton. So therefore, I almost exclusively talk about white voters when I talk about the election. The, um, the interesting thing is if you look at people, whites with only a four-year college degree, they also voted for Trump, including a plurality of white women. 
in that class, that the, the, the support for Clinton among whites was heavily concentrated among people with master's degrees, advanced certifications, and so forth. So educationally speaking, the Democrats have a top and bottom uh, coalition where you have, on the one hand, lots of poor minorities who typically don't have uh, high educations, and also then lots of affluent whites uh, who do. And it sets up a problem in, in the fact that the, uh, the, the bottom part of the coalition is concerned with bread and butter issues, jobs and health care and their kids' education. Uh, the top part of the coalition doesn't have to worry about things like that, and they are concerned more about lifestyle issues, issues of gender, racial, sexual equality, uh, climate change, and so forth. And so the priorities of the two parts of the coalition are actually different. Now, has Trump exploited this? I think to some extent, uh, absolutely, that uh, given that uh, many of the, uh, the activists in the Democratic Party are really, they come from this sort of affluent upper middle class uh, background and emphasize uh, the, the more lifestyle kinds of issues, uh, lifestyle and sort of self-affirming issues, that many parts of the old Democratic coalition, the industrial workers who really are concerned with bread and butter issues and have not done very well in the new world order, uh, they felt neglected. They felt their party has left behind, left them behind. And that clearly, I, I think it's exaggerated to some extent, but it clearly uh, showed up in the last election. But one of the things I emphasize in the book is, in, in later essays is this is not a brand new phenomenon. This has been happening since 1964. And George Wallace in 1968 clearly exploited these divisions as well. And Trump is, in a sense, the culmination. He is as much the product of the, these changes in the Democratic Party as he is the cause of them. So he's not a fundamental new force in American politics. No, he is the resurgence of, of an older force. So what do you say for the future then? Is this now, is he going to overreach? Has he overreached? I know he tweets a lot. Uh, uh, and he's not very popular. Is this, uh, is this consistent with your overreach argument? Uh, I actually, I say in one of the chapters in the book that Trump, by virtue of being a non-standard candidate, may break the overreach dynamic. And the reason is uh, Trump is, is simply not the typical conservative Republican in terms of his policies. He said, for example, he's, he's, he's not in favor of the trade deals. Uh, he said, we're not going to touch Social Security and Medicare. Um, and not a whole lot has gotten done, legislatively speaking, unlike, say, the big health care plan and so forth under Obama. Uh, so it may be that there is no big uh, overreach for people to react against uh, in the 2018 election. I actually say that explicitly. One of the ironies is a less successful administration legislatively may in fact do better in the next election than one that passes its program and the program is not terribly popular among the large Well, the polling country. right now says that the Democrats are the generic congressional vote shows the Democrats up by 10 percentage points. Is that is that a too early an estimate? Things could change by election yes, day? Yes, yes. It's an important statistic, and it's predictive. But we have 40 weeks away from the election. And as the old saying goes, a week in politics is an eternity. Uh, 40 weeks is sort of incalculable. And uh, so, I mean, I, I could make a scenario for heavy Democratic lo Republican losses in the election or for minimal Republican losses. And a lot just depends on international incidents. A lot depends on whether the economy keeps, the economy is sort of perking along quite well right now. And if it keeps on doing that uh, until the election, then barring other negatives, Trump could do better, the Republicans could do better than it looks. It's also the case that the Democrats have to avoid the old circular firing squad um, metaphor that they have so many people running in so many districts and have to nominate the right candidates, that there are some candidates whom the progressives love that simply are unelectable in areas they need to take back a new House majority.
So it's usually the case that the out party, the party that does not control the president, does very well in off-year elections. Isn't that likely to hold this time too? It is, and almost certainly the Republicans will lose seats. That's only happened, not happened three times since the Civil War. But the question is, will they lose 24 or more, which is what has to happen for the Democrats to retake the House. And so that's going to be the critical question. If the Republicans can hold it to 20 or so, that'll be considered a reasonably successful election for them. So you're very hopeful about American politics. You don't see things falling apart. Uh, what do you see over the long run? Can you say the next 10, 20 years? Do you see more the same, or how would you see the drift going? Well, in the book, I compare the current era to the late 19th century in the United States, where we had similar political chaos, uh, no consistent majorities, very close presidential elections, changes in control of Congress. This period went on from basically 1876 to 1896. And it's possible you might want to even push this back to the 1850s. We did have a civil war in there, of course, and there were no majorities. Um, and and it, in a sense, the, the eras are the same. They were eras of mass immigration, eras of industrial transformation, the Industrial Revolution was going on. Uh, the same kinds of social and economic transformations have been occurring in more recent years, and these create major problems for societies. They create winners and losers, they disrupt old coalitions, they suggest the possibility of new coalitions, and politicians take a long time to figure out how to deal with these problems. And It took over 20 years in the late 19th century. We could still be in the middle of this sorting out uh, in the current era. So it is not a period in which I would care to make any predictions about the future. So you're being very careful. Uh, which makes a lot of sense in this world of, of turmoil. I've been speaking with Morris Fiorina, who has uh, just released a new book, Unstable Majorities, Polarization, Party Sorting, and Political Statement. It's published by the Hoover Institution. Uh, Mo is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. He's also a professor at Stanford University. This is an extremely important book. Thank you all for joining me on the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson. Thank you, Mo, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you for having me, Paul.